I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. This morning we begin the Advent season. It's kind of, isn't it kind of wild to be talking about Advent in November? Shouldn't you? Know, but that's just the way the calendar plays out. And as we begin the Advent season today, each week we're going to look in depth at the the characteristics. I, I one time said the names, but it's actually singular in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. His name will be called. So there's this these characteristics of the one to come. Isaiah 9.6 is a very familiar passage to so many. For some of you, you've heard that verse every single Christmas season for as far back as you can remember. Maybe you've heard it from a Christmas pageant. Maybe it's when you hear the familiar violin opening to the 12th movement of Handel's Messiah and the song goes through and this verse is repeated time and again. For unto us a child is born and it goes on repeatedly. It's very familiar. But there might be some of those for whom this verse is not familiar. And if you, the verse is not familiar to you, then there are questions that loom. What does it mean? Why do we have this prophecy in the Bible? How does this have any impact on my life on November 28, 2021? Well, I hope over the next few weeks as we examine these descriptions of the Messiah, these descriptions of, of Jesus... Uh, in this verse. My prayer is several fold. I've been praying that we would each grow again and more in our understanding of Jesus. I've been praying for those who may not yet have a relationship with Jesus, who, who may, may be here or may be watching us online, who are saying, who is Jesus really? That, that you would grow in understanding who he is and how he can truly be the forgiver and leader and, and one to guide your life. I've been praying for those who maybe have grown up in the church all their lives and are kind of saying, yeah, I'm kind of done with that stuff now, that uh, the, the, the catchphrase is deconstructing, that maybe you would take a step back and say, okay, let me put aside what I've been taught and, and tradition and let me look at what God's word really says. And I hope that all of us We'll be drawn to him as we discover how deeply our Lord understands us, how in reality he's the only one who can pay the penalty for sin and bring us into a meaningful, significant, purposeful faith relationship with God the Father, with sin forgiven through Christ. So we are in Isaiah chapter 9, and we are going to spend four weeks in one verse Isaiah 9.6, and I'm going to tell you, jumping into Isaiah 9.6 and just starting into dissecting these terms that are here, it's kind of like walking into a movie that's already begun. You walk into a movie that's already begun and you may not be familiar with it and in your mind you're thinking, okay, now who are the main characters? You're thinking, what's the plot line? 
What have I missed so far? How do I catch up? How do I figure out what has brought us to this point? So I don't want to do that. I'm going to take just a few minutes and give you a very, very brief introduction and some context. The prophecy of Isaiah was divided up in 1227 A.D. or thereabouts into 66 chapters. And it's very interesting because when you look at the prophecy of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters tend to focus on the the nation of Israel and God's judgment for their rebellion. But then the next 27 chapters deal with God's restorative process of the nation of Israel. And there are some that say it kind of reflects the Old and New Testament in a bit. In fact, we don't need to go into it. There are also some that say because of the differences of those Isaiahs, there were probably two guys that wrote it, not one. But that's, that's stuff for guys somewhere and gals somewhere in a library somewhere to try to figure out. Isaiah, we do know, lived in what would be called the 8th century B.C. He had a ministry that spanned 58 years. Uh, it went, he's, his ministry spanned the reigns of three kings. Uh, And his name in Hebrew means the salvation of Yahweh, which very much fits his prophecy. We do know that Isaiah was married. He had several children. Strange names were given to some of them, but some of those children, but all of their names bore symbolic meaning for God's dealing of his people. Now, the first six chapters in Isaiah form something of a a prologue, an introduction of the book. You read those first six chapters, you understand why God is upset specifically with the kingdom of Judah. Uh, He describes them as rebellious and ungrateful children. And yet, as any parent, God's deepest desire is to restore relationship with those children. And so the first five chapters deal with that desire of God. He, he, this is what you're doing. Here's what I want you to do. This is how you're behaving. Here's what I long for you to behave. Here's where you're, you're going off the rails, and here's where I want you to come back to the rails. I want to restore that relationship. Chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah to serve God, to be God's messenger. And chapter 6 begins with a, a, a national crisis in Isaiah because it begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a really good king. He had been on the throne for almost 50 years himself. And he had done some really great stuff. And he had secured borders. And he had gotten the economy rolling. And, and all the things that you think that are good in a nation. And things were the, 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 his, his, his approval numbers were up. But you don't have approval numbers for a king. It doesn't matter to him. But it, you know everything that you would mark as success, that was happening. And then he dies. And it's a crisis. What do we do now? His son that took over after him was not as strong. And Isaiah found himself in chapter 6 having this vision of God. And this vision of God saying, who will go for us? Isaiah says, I'll go. But in the midst of his vision of God, he sees God's holiness and he sees his sinfulness. And an angel comes and takes a, a, a coal from the altar and puts it in his mouth and cleanses him as it were and 
he goes and he's told, you're going to deliver a message and they ain't going to listen. That's my hillbilly translation. You've got a message to take to people and they're not going to listen to you. And they're going to harden their hearts, but I want you to go anyway. As we enter into chapter 7, we begin with this kind of set of peaks and valleys. Chapter 7, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz would probably be the grandson of Uzziah. Ahaz was not a good king, and he was not a good father. He was a king that decided he would trust anyone or anything but God. And in light of that, he actually offered one of his sons as a sacrifice to the god Molech. So Isaiah is sent to confront him. He goes to confront him in chapter 7, and he wants to challenge him to trust God. And so as a result, in chapter 7, we run into a very familiar verse, a very familiar Christmas time verse in, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, because Ahaz just doesn't want to do anything that God wants him to do. And Isaiah comes to him, and in verse 13, he meets him because there's a threat. There's a threat from Assyria. There's a threat from other nations up north. And he's checking out and see, well, okay, do we have enough water that we can handle a long siege? Isaiah meets him there at the place where he's overlooking the city. And in verse 13, he says, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Now that question comes after this. Isaiah says to Ahaz, Ask the Lord God for a sign, and he will show it to you. Ahaz gets all high and mighty and goes, I'm not going to ask God for a sign or put him to the test. But here's the problem. When God tells you to ask for a sign, you probably ought to ask for a sign. And that's as Isaiah says, is it enough for you to try the patience of humans? Not even, not, a, not even that, the patience of God? So God's going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Before, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. He says, you're not going to ask God for a sign. God's going to show you a sign. Now, in, in context, at the moment, Isaiah's not thinking Mary some thousand, you know, some 1,200 years down the road. He's thinking there's someone in the castle. There's someone in the royal court. There's a young lady. In fact, the word translated virgin could be translated a young lady. She's going to bear a child, and she's going to name him Emmanuel. And before that child knows the difference between right and wrong, the things that you fear Ahaz, God's going to take care of them. But because you won't trust God Ahaz, because I know your heart, you're thinking about signing a pact with the Assyrians, they're going to take over. And by the way, it all happened. Verse 8, or chapter 8, kind of talks about what's going to happen, and this is where Isaiah and his children become signs, and then finally we get into chapter 9. 
Chapter 9 is a second promise. The first promise that Matthew hearkened back to is, one is going to come, you're going to call him Emmanuel. God is with you whether you like it or not, Ahaz. That's kind of a peak. It goes down into a valley. We get to chapter 9. And we begin to read this. After all of the Assyrians come, after everything happens, verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea and beyond Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, the passage that we've read, verses 2 through 7, is the first promise of a king who will fulfill the promises given to King David some 240 years earlier. It takes that veiled and futuristic promise of Isaiah 7:14 and it builds on it. And to get to verse 6, we've got to kind of get a running start. As you would suspect, the people walking in darkness, verse 2, walking in darkness seems to indicate, gives you a visual of people kind of stumbling along. You know, it's interesting. I, I kind of know myself, my way around this room, pretty good. I can come in here at night with the lights off and only the spotlights on in the back and as long as nothing has been moved, I can make my way from this end of the, the auditorium to that end without tripping. And, you know, I, I know my way around, but you know what? It's dark. I walk slowly. I take my time. I don't want to run into anything. That's, that's the mindset. Any place where you're unfamiliar, you look for a light quickly, don't you? The, the people walking in darkness, the people who are confused, the, they are looking for a light. And they've seen, he sent, and notice how he sets this as past tense. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The things that Isaiah is seeing here, he has seen so clearly that they, he expresses them in past tense. And the regions mentioned in here, uh, Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee of the Nations, those regions that are mentioned there are regions that the Assyrian army would have come and, and taken over. 
And Isaiah says, these people, they've been walking in darkness. They've been wandering far away from God. They've been moving away from God. And yet in the midst of their confusion, there's a great light. A revelation, if you will. Hope. There's a future reality that is certain. Verse 3 speaks of an enlarged nation. Uh, a nation that's enlarged enjoys peace, enjoys security, enjoys the security of their borders. Verse 4 speaks of a great victory over Midian. Uh, that's referencing back to Judges 6 and 7 when a guy by the name of Gideon was threshing wheat down in a pit and, and he's called a mighty warrior and, and as a result, he goes and he leads an army against Midian. But remember in that passage, God said, your army's too big. If you, if you take this army out, you're going to say, we won. And he whittles it back and whittles it back till Gideon has 300 men against thousands of Midianites and they win. God wins the victory. And so it's saying that kind of victory, that celebration, that's coming. Verse 5 speaks of the burning of the warrior's boots and garments. That's a symbol of the fact that a time would come when those things would no longer be necessary. When those things are no longer needed and they can burn them, they can get rid of them. But, but how, can, how can the prophet say this? The Assyrians are knocking at the door. The, the nation of the land of Israel, when the kingdom sp split in half, they, they're, they're threatening. How can you say this? And Isaiah wants us to know, he wants them to know, he wants us to know that the description that he gives of the one to come is a description of God with us. A description of one who is to come. And the text gives us some clues as to who this person is. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. The one to come is both a promise and a gift. The one to come is both a promise and a gift. A child is born. He's going to be born. In other words, he's a human child. And here's what we're going to see as we look through all of these. There's going to be a human element and a divine element. So a child is born. A human child is born. He's going to come into the world like any other child. He's going to go through the natural process of birth. For unto us a child is born, but a son is given. There's this offer of a son presented, as it were, by God. Now, we have a great advantage today. You see, we have the advantage of looking back through biblical history. We have the advantage of looking back through history, and we have the advantage of reading very familiar verses such as this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah would have not have known those words of John 3.16, but his knowledge of God's promise to David, his knowledge of God's promise all the way back even to Eve, and God's promise of a, of a seed to come and reverse what Satan had brought about in Eden, that knowledge gave him hope. The one to come was this promise and a gift. A promise of a son, of a child, and a gift of a son. He goes on. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, we use that idiom a lot 
in our own conversation. One form of that idiom is used in athletics, right? You've heard it. You may have heard it before. That guy, he's such a great player, he put the whole team on his back and carried them to victory. What did he do? He put them on his shoulders and he was responsible for the victory. Or you use it in other things. That person, they have broad shoulders. They can handle it. It's speaking of one who can handle responsibility. You see, not only is the one to come a promise and a gift, the one to come is one who has all authority. When Isaiah says, by God's help, he sees this one with the government on his shoulders, he would say something like this, he will shoulder the responsibility of leading and governing. Interesting, in the ancient world, the color of robe that an official wore was very important because the color of robe would represent the authority that you brought about. A king would typically wear a purple robe which signified all authority. In a real sense, Isaiah is depicting one who would come who would have the authority not over the nation only, but also over the world. And when we look ahead to verse 7 that we read, we see that it's a government of peace that will not end. And fast forward, I think it was one line in the angel's announcement to Mary that kind of changed the deal for her. He shall reign over the house of his father, David, forever. He's going to come with all authority. Now, biblical names are reflective of one's character and person. Names are important. Every one of us in here has a name. That name is important to us. It's, it's who we are. It's how you identify us. We live in a time where we do everything to protect our identity because people will, uh, unscrupulous people will steal that identity and try to use it to their own advantage. Some of us have a nickname that uh, over the years has become kind of a way of speaking about us. Remember we spoke a few weeks ago about Joseph from Cyprus. Nobody knows him as Joseph in the Bible. He's Barnabas, son of encouragement. That was kind of a nickname that he was given. Some of us have a diminutive. You know, when I was a kid, my grand, granny and my, grand, and my aunts and my uncles, everybody called me Scotty. I got to a point I didn't want to be called Scotty anymore. I'm actually offended when somebody calls me Scotty because that's not who I want to be identified as. And we all have that. Names are important. In the Bible, names also reflect character. And in, in our current era, names reflect reputation. You know, somebody calls me up and says, hey, what about that? And they mention a name. I won't mention any here. And I go, oh, that's a really good person. You know, I get, I had a friend reach out to me recently. He's applying for an academic program. Would you be a reference for me? Sure, I'll be a reference for you. And I, I wrote about this friend and what I knew about him. I've known him for, since he was a high school student and, and all. And, and, and I gave a reference. And, and I, when I think of that person's name, there are certain great characteristics I think about them. So here we have his name will be called. He will be called. And so we have these reflective characteristics of this person. And like I said, what's interesting is we're going to get both a human and a divine characteristic. And the first statement here is he will be called, or his name will be, Wonderful Counselor. 
the one who is to come is truly extraordinary. That's what the word translated wonderful means. This word is a, in its verbal form means to cause wonderful things to happen. Interestingly enough, the word that's translated wonderful is a word that's typically used to describe God and to describe his amazing works or the things of God's that, are, uh, that God does that are just too, too lofty for us to even grab a hold of. We can't even tr- describe it. It's a word that means extraordinary. It's a word that means remarkable, astounding, amazing. The Psalms use this word, a couple of instances, Psalm 9.1. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 139.14, maybe more familiar to some of us. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This one to come, this child that's going to be born, this son that's given to us is characterized by the wonderful works of God that leave all who watch in awe. We went through the book of Acts earlier this fall. Remember we looked at Peter's first sermon. And in verse 22, think again how he described Jesus. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That's the Greek equivalent of this word here, wonderful, wonders. So the one to come, this one to come has the power of God to cause wonderful things to happen. And when we look at the Gospels and we look at Jesus' ministry, we get a glimpse of those wonderful things. You know, Jesus publicly ministered for three, three and a half years. Now think for a minute. In fact, we, we kind of reminisced just the other day. You see, today, November 28th, is the day eight years ago when my father passed away. Uh, it was Thanksgiving night that time, but uh, eight years ago, my father passed away. And all, my wife looked at me and goes, wow, think about our lives. What's changed even in these eight years? We had uh, two grandkids. Now we have six. We, you know, had, both of our daughters were married, but now our son is married. And he gives us, a, we have a grand dog too. Uh, you know, and we just went through, you know, and, and our one, couple of kids have got, had moved to, uh, done some missions in Mexico and now are back. And, and it's just, it's, we just started thinking, it kind of blows your mind. But you don't even have to go eight years. Try to think back just the last 12 months. Unless you keep a very detailed diary, you can't remember all of the things that have gone on in your life over the past 12 months. And if you add three years to that, imagine that in those three years you're in the very presence of the eternal Word, God Himself in flesh, Jesus Christ. Imagine in three years thinking of the healings and the demons cast out and so many other things and the teaching and and just so many things that you saw day in and day out. John 
at the end of his gospel, says this in John 21, 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every of them, every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. His name is called Wonderful. But he's not just wonderful, he's Wonderful Counselor. That speaks to the fact that the one to come understands and guides. Now, I know when we see the word counselor, we tend to see someone who maybe is wearing a tweed jacket, and uh, maybe, maybe you are lying on a couch or you're sitting in a chair, and you walk in, and maybe they have a notepad, and they're kind of learning how to lean in and listen. I know, because that's all the stuff we were taught. Lean in, listen, not the tweed jacket stuff. And then you say, I am really frustrated today. Talk about frustrated. Well, well, my wife is really bugging me. Talk about bugging. <laughs> and maybe it goes on like that for a while. The word translated counselor here is not kind of what we typically see in one sense. It points to one who does guide, they instruct, they advise. And in some ways, that's the role of a good human counselor. A good counselor listens. A good counselor empathizes. A good counselor leads their counselee into making changes. It leads them into doing good decisions. They don't tell them what decisions to make. They, they guide them. They lead them. They move them. They listen. They encourage. And in my estimation, a good counselor also has his or her foundation in the truth of God's word. They may not preach to you. They may not teach, but they are guided by God's truth. The best counselors have not just studied human behavior in books. They've lived life. And they have shared experiences, and they can truly empathize with those that they are coming alongside of. Who but Jesus fits that description best? Luke chapter 2, verse 52 said, And the child grew and increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Can I break that down for you? He grew mentally. He learned stuff. He grew physically. He grew up. He knows what it's like to experience growing pains. He grew in favor with God. He grew spiritually. And he grew in favor with man. He grew socially. He knew to play, say please and thank you and to be polite to people and to listen to them. In every way that you and I grow, Jesus grows or grew. He experienced hunger. We find that in Luke 4, Matthew 4, in the, in the various in the, in the times when he was sent out into the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he knew hunger. He knew temptation as the tempter came, as Satan came and tried to tempt him to bypass, to shortcut God's path to the cross. He knew that. He's experienced the pain of being misunderstood by his own family as they came in the Gospel of Mark to take him away because they said he's out of his mind. 
Jesus knew what it was like to be abandoned by those who claimed to follow him because in John 6, they all but the 12 left him. They couldn't handle what he was teaching. Jesus knew the pain of being betrayed by a friend that he had poured his life into for three years. Jesus stood at the grave of a good friend and he wept just as you and I have at the graveside of a friend or a loved one. Jesus was angry at the enemy of death, just as you and I have been. Jesus was so exhausted one day that he fell asleep in the back of the boat in the middle of a storm. And when he died, he died alone, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As my mentor said, he died alone so that we would never have to be alone. Jesus knows. The writer to the book of Hebrews summarizes it this way in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows. Let me put it in a 21st century term. Jesus gets you. Jesus gets me. He gets it. He understands. Isaiah said his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be amazing. He will do wonderful things. He will do things that you can't wrap your head around. But he's a wonderful counselor. He's empathetic. He understands. He's been there. He's walked in your shoes. He gets it. He gets you. The one Isaiah saw, we have seen. Jesus, the only Son of God. We sing about him at this time of year. I think of that Christmas carol by Charles Wesley that is laden with great theology. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We begin the Advent season. Oh, our retailers began it some time ago. They're all worried about supply chain issues. Maybe we need to shift our focus yet again. I love the decorations. I love the lights. I love the sounds. I never want to do it, but I like looking at the YouTube videos where the people can synchronize all their lights with music. That's so fun. That's so cool. It's so festive. I love the cookies and the good stuff. or Well, the stuff that's not good for you, but it tastes really good. I, I love that. I love the treats. I love getting together with people. I love the gatherings, the gifts. I love watching, the, especially. I like... As I've gotten older, I, I enjoy watching presents being opened. I mean, just send me mine on Amazon. But I love watching. I love the wonder in the eyes of my grandkids and the joy when they open presents. I love all that. And I would submit to you this morning that were it not for Jesus, we may not have any of that. 
This Advent season, like any Advent season, is really only complete. It's only meaningful. It's only joyous if we all come back to the simple truth of Jesus Christ who was born for the purpose of going to the cross to die in my place, in your place. You want to be fulfilled in any Christmas season. It happens when you embrace the Christ of Christmas. It's more than just giving a historical or a mental assent to a historical Jesus. It's when you open your life to him in faith and confess your separation from God by sin and accept his life-changing forgiveness. Then you discover that he truly is a wonderful counselor, one who understands, who guides, who is truly extraordinary. He truly is a wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the reminder of who Jesus is. As we look at Isaiah, who had that immense privilege of prophesying and seeing things that he probably couldn't fully explain or understand, but he knew for a fact that you had a plan and that it was a wonderful plan. It was a plan of a promise and he trusted you to carry it out. Now, Lord, as we are on this side of the promise, as we look back and we see the fulfillment, may we renew or begin our commitment to see you truly as the wonderful counselor and allow you to be the one who rules our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.